I was told, you know, just make the cocktails, put them up, see how fast you can do it. Get to do the round in five minutes. And the first time we ran through it, it was nine and a half minutes. And we just ran through it over and over for probably 18 hours. And the first time that I actually got it down to five minutes was when I did it live on camera. Welcome to the Diageo Bar Academy podcast, Bar Chat. This is Tristan Stevenson. Today, I am speaking with world-class 2021 winner, James Grant. On this episode, James and I talk about his experiences entering world-class and how the virtual competition worked last year. We talk about some of his drinks, the bar he currently runs, Little HK, bad classic cocktails, developing cocktails, how to balance drinks, the food and drink scene in Edmonton, Canada, cocktails and location, as well as what is next for James. I think this is a good one, folks, and I sincerely hope you agree. Okay, I am here with James Grant. Welcome to the podcast, James. Thanks very much for having me, Tristan. Absolute pleasure. I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, but first, we have to do some quickfire questions for you. I know you listened to a few of the episodes of the podcast, but you may not be familiar with this particular part of the format because it's shiny and new. Um, we used to used to do quick fire questions at the end and they were all the same questions, but now we have some tailored or slightly more tailored quick fire questions for every guest that we put at the start of the episode. Are you ready? All right. Yeah. Fire away. It's one word answers by the way. So we'd try and get through them quick. All right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Would you rather be able to speak every language in the world or be able to talk to animals? Uh, every language in the world. Savoy Hotel or Connaught Hotel? Ooh, uh, Connaught. Gary Regan or David Wondrich? Oh, Gaz. <laughs> when you fly on a plane, do you wear a neck pillow? I keep trying to find one that works. <laughs> Nickname your parents used to call you? JD. Do you like the word dapper? Uh... That's fine. Yes or no? Have you ever said to a guest, that's how it's supposed to taste? Probably when I was earlier in my career. <laughs> yeah, I think we all have. Uh, real meat or faux meat? Uh, faux. Vegetarian. Yeah. Do you like baiju? The spirit or my workplace? Yeah, the spirit, the spirit. I do, yeah. The next question is, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not all of it, but a lot of it I think is quite quite lovely. Yeah. Do you have a phobia? Yes. Final question. Do you think the trend towards bartenders and chefs getting items of service wear tattooed onto their arms is likely to result in increased demand for tattoo removal services in 20 to 30 years' time? Oh... Maybe. I mean, I've got a bar spoon that, that's on there, so I don't know if I'll ever have to take it off, but we'll see. <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. Cool. That's the quickfire questions over and done with. What, what, what do you think of that? Do you want to elaborate on anything? Uh, no, they're pretty good. They're pretty, they cover a lot of bases. I, I do cringe at the idea of having told a guest that's how it's supposed to taste, because that probably means it tasted horrible. I know, right? <laughs> if that's how it's supposed to taste and they didn't like it, then it exactly. probably wasn't right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm not I mean, doing I suppose, my job properly. 
Yeah, although I suppose there's a that that could it could happen legitimately uh, with certain strong drinks like an old fashioned or a Negroni that are well known, but a guest has perhaps never ordered it before, and then they get it and they're like, "This is undrinkable" because they've never had anything like that before. I think there's also some specific classics that just are quite bad cocktails. Um, Go on then. You know, I used to have a guest that would order an arsenic and old lace, which oh yeah, I think no, no matter which way you slice it, it's a pretty bad drink. It's like what's in it? Is it dry vermouth, uh, violet liqueur, absinthe, gin? Maybe Oof. it's just it's yeah, it's like a glass of perfume. There's a, there's a lot of those drinks, aren't there, from the, that sort of um, sort of post-prohibition era, I'm going to say, maybe a bit of pre-prohibition as well, where you had like just any mixture of liqueur and sweet things and then maybe some gin or a, some other spirit kind of thrown in there, possibly vermouth. And then yeah. and you're like, how? Like this is just kind of like grabbing any bottle and mixing it together to assume that you're then a cocktail bartender. Oh, yeah. And I think that, um, you know, as we all come up as bartenders, I think we all had that habit of keeping our, our recipes uh, in a little notebook, like whatever we made up hmm. on shift. And we were like, oh, this is pretty good. Put it in a notebook. And sometimes I wonder how many of these very, very old cocktail books uh, were the equivalent of a, of a 1920s bartender. So I don't know if they're all necessarily hits. I, I think you're absolutely right definitely some of my research into old books you're like who put this together exactly i mean there's a lot of a lot of old cocktail books aren't really put together by bartenders it's often like journalists or socialites or sort of just notable figures of the day public like publicists and marketeers and things like that and you know we kind of like analyze these books in detail and take everything that's written there as verbatim like right this is the archetype this is the way it needs to be needs to be made and that but then they're also full of errors you know like inconsistencies with, sure. with measurements or um you know some books have got like more than one recipe for basically the same drink and it does kind of point to like you say oh, this man. idea that someone's just handed over a load of scrawled notes <laughs> the savoy book is so funny for that a few years ago when i was getting ready for the world-class uh, national finals here in Canada. Um, one of our, our challenges was based around the 1920s. It was a tank ray tent challenge based around the 1920s. And I was like, oh, I'll do, I'll do kind of a little menu inspired by the Savoy. And I kept going through it and I kept finding drink after drink after drink that was like Italian vermouth, French vermouth, gin, curacao, maraschino, absinthe in like some sort of weird arrangement. But it was essentially the same cocktail over and over and over again. Mm. I think probably there was a temptation for bartenders to just throw the kitchen sink at a cocktail as well. It's like we've got this new liqueur, we've got this fancy vermouth, we've got dry gin or whatever it might be. So let's just put it all in the same cocktail because that's surely what you want, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's probably what a lot of guests were asking for. Yeah, exactly. I, you want to be seen to be drinking whatever are the fashionable products and fashionable cocktails of the day. And I think, you know, even today, a lot of people will set aside taste preferences in order to be able to experience something new and exciting because it's, you know, in trendy or in vogue. Mm -hmm. Well, I think, you know, I think we've just, we're not allowed to get away with it anymore where we take an existing drink and add like two dashes of different bitters to it and call it something different. 
I think I think people caught wise to that trick a while ago. Well, this is it. It's the whole kind of like subtle modification, especially because bartenders, a lot of bartenders are much better at researching now. So many of these drinks have appeared on menus. And so to sort of just do that slight modification is a little bit kind of sneaky, I would say. Yeah. Um, but, also, but also, I think there's like a precedent for doing that, just being more creative than that, isn't there? I mean, these days, the, the sort of ingredients that you see in, in cocktails, especially in certain cocktail bars, you're like, what the hell is like concrete doing in a, as an ingredient in a cocktail or, you know, like some kind of flower that you've like never heard of before. And you're like, well, what, how, where's this come from? What is it? And why is it not being used by anyone else? I think that's like one of the most exciting things about being able to go to cocktail bars all over the world now. You know, like you talk about uh, like concrete in a drink. I think about the first time that I ever had the the concrete Sazerac at, at Dandelion, um, you know, dearly departed. Uh, but it blew my mind and it was something I could like go back and, and try in my bar and, and, you know, expose my community to. Or, you know, here in Vancouver, there's a lot of bars that use a lot of locally forged ingredients. And one of them is uh, candy cap mushrooms. Uh, which have these kind of this, these beautiful notes of like butterscotch and toffee and maple um, that I've never encountered, but they're they're so beautiful and they get used in cuisine and cocktails here all the time. And yeah, I think I think as you know, we have more of a, a global cocktail culture. It's it's nice that we can see this kind of cross pollination of flavors and ideas. Do they look, these mushrooms look like, are they striped like red and white or something like candy cane? No, they're, they're, the name. they're quite small. They're quite small and they kind of look almost like caramel colored. Yeah. So like a I think they're called can Yeah. They're called candy cap kind of, I think because of the flavor. Oh, nice. Well, I definitely want to see that. Out. A confectionery mushroom sounds fantastic. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So, um, world-class winner, 2021. Um, I want to get into your experiences in the competition. We can share notes because I was involved in that competition a little bit as well. But congratulations. Um, are you, you still kind of buzzing from that or, uh, you know, has the sort of, is it back to reality? Uh, I mean, yes, yes to both. Uh, I mean, first of all, thank you. It's 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 not something I really ever thought was going to happen. Um, I, I was saying earlier, I kind of figured I would probably be able to eventually win the Canadian final. Uh, you know, once all the more talented bartenders kind of got out of the way and won it first. Uh, so, you know, finally able to win it and then go on and and really unexpectedly win the the global final was huge. Um, but you know, it was nice when I finally they took my phone away after I won. My my team took my phone away because they're like, "This is just going to be distracting you all night. You can have it back in the morning. Um, we want you to enjoy the evening." Yeah. And when I got it back, there was a, a note from work. They were saying, "You know, congratulations, but you still have to set up your own station, uh, and you still have to be in on Friday." <laughs> so I don't I don't really get you know a ton of special treatment. I'm just happy to go in and get to bartend every week. So. Yeah, I mean, more guests come in and they're they're kind of excited to come in and, and meet me and, and sort of see what kind of drinks I can make for them. But in general, my life uh, has been fairly stable. But with this year's world-class competition kicking off again, it looks like, you know, I'm going to be traveling a bit and meeting bartenders in other countries as they compete. So that's quite exciting to think about. Especially now the world's opening up, hey, and we can actually travel again and do all of that. Because, uh, 
you you had an interesting competition, didn't you? It, it was all done virtually with sort of a, a central hub in London, and it um, was that, that it must was have been really challenging in its own way. Yeah, yeah, it was. I mean, kudos to the global team for pulling it off because it must have been such an enormous undertaking, um, and it came together. I would say relatively seamlessly uh, when it was all said and done. Obviously, there were challenges. I can't imagine the kind of headache for the logistics team on the ground, uh, kind of wrangling all these, you know, it's tough wrangling bartenders at the best of times, but doing it across 50 countries and via courier services probably, you know, left them with more than a few sleepless nights. But yeah, it was it was really interesting. It's very hard, I think, to express hospitality across a Zoom call. Um, yeah. So that was that was very difficult, I think, for a lot of bartenders. But it almost seemed like it was made up for by the fact that all of us were just so desperate to get back to doing our jobs and and looking after guests again. That you know we probably overcompensated with our hospitality, and 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 that made the transition over over the camera. Yeah, it was it was definitely different. I mean, it prepared me more for things like this, talking to people over over yeah. a call. But uh, yeah, as much as I'd never done a competition like that before, and don't necessarily know if I would want to do a competition that way again, it's kind of hard for me to complain about the results. Yeah, absolutely. So let, just to recap for anyone who's not familiar with the competition and certainly not familiar with, with how it went last year, um, about 50 bartenders in total from all over the world. How many different rounds of competition were there? So I believe there were seven challenges. Um, one of them was sort of split into two parts, but there was a Kettle One community initiative uh, involved a pre-submitted video component and then a uh, cocktail made live on camera for judges. The goal was put together uh, an initiative that identified an issue in each bartender's community and uh, address it somehow. So some bartenders looked at food insecurity, some bartenders looked at uh, environmental sustainability. I looked at uh, working with an organization in my home community that helped uh, alleviate uh, the kind of major issue of people suffering from homelessness in my community. Um, yeah. So I had a, a cocktail that was was served at venues across the city, a little uh, bottled uh, kind of espresso martini variation. And, you know, it was paired with a piece of vintage glassware and, and all the proceeds for that went to uh, this organization that moves individuals into safe, sustainable uh, ongoing housing and allows them to sort of furnish it for themselves, sort of, sort of gives people agency uh, back when they haven't had it uh, in quite a long time. Uh, and that organization just does such incredible work in my community. I was happy to be a part of it. Um, there was also a challenge uh, with Don Julio, the Don Julio Subterranean Serve. So that involved uh, pairing Don Julio tequila with an ingredient uh, that grows underground in the same way that agave does. So uh, for that challenge, uh, I based mine on sunchokes and ended up doing this very weird vegetal uh variation on jeffrey morgenthaler's tequila and cherry eggnog uh tried to give the judges a little bit of uh holiday hospitality considering we'd all been uh kind of unable to see family over the holidays that year it's weird to think you know it's not that long ago but we were under such intense 
restrictions yeah. uh, during that Do period of pandemic. you say sunchokes? So sunchokes, uh, they're also called Jerusalem artichokes. Okay, right, got you. Yeah. Um, just these okay. really beautiful, nutty, kind of rich and sweet uh, root crops. Um, yep. There was also a Tanqueray masterclass. So the goal was to put together a six-minute video uh, that the judges would watch and they would make the drink themselves. And they would sort of judge how good the drink was and how well the competitors did at uh, kind of guiding them through the process of making it, which, you know, once I found out who my judges were for that, it was a little bit of added stress. Um, I had my predecessor, uh, Banny, the 2020 yeah. global winner, and um, Agil Perone, so no stress. Uh <laughs> But, uh, so that was quite fun. And what did we have after that? We had the Johnny Walker highball challenge. So we were tasked with creating a, uh, non-alcoholic cordial that would be paired with water and Johnny Walker, black label, blended whiskey and carbonated. So we were yeah. tasked with creating a highball that represented our community. So I wanted to capture the flavors and aromas that were coming out of uh, the city that I lived in at the time, uh, through Edmonton, uh, there is this massive ribbon of uh, uninterrupted green space uh, that runs alongside uh, the major river that kind of bisects the city. And uh, it was right when all of the plants were coming into bloom. So I harvested spruce tips. So the fresh buds from spruce trees, which have this really beautiful tropical green, almost kiwi-like flavor, um, fresh nice. lilac which is a, a beautiful light white flower uh, and uh, actually took some charred pine boughs, uh, which when you burn them and char them, they kind of take on a very earthy, almost cardamom flavor uh, and then mm. flavor that with a little bit of uh, maple syrup and created something that, you know, I felt was very representative of where I came from and then finished it as a garnish with a little uh, candied baby pine cone, which is kind of a traditional uh, Scandinavian uh, confection, but if you get pine cones when you're young enough, you can actually candy them and they have this spongy little texture and, uh, quite this kind of resinous, uh, woodsy character. So it was nice. pretty fun all told. And yeah, it was, I think that was the thing. That, that, that sounds like a, at, sounds like a trip to Canada in a glass. That one does. Basically. I mean, that was, that was one of the few of my challenges that was broadcast during live broadcast and, uh, seeing again, I had, uh, I had Hannah Lamphere and, and, uh, Agil Perone as, as judges for that. And, um, when, when asked, uh, Senor Perone, he said, you know, have you ever been to Canada? I think this is what it's like. Um, what stressed me out so badly is at first they didn't think they could eat the pine cone. And I was like, no, they have to eat the pine cone. That's, that's such a big part of it. And finally they, they reread the instructions and each took a little bite. So, uh, a little bit of stress, but I think it paid off. And then the final challenge was, uh, the top 10 speed round the tale of two malts yeah. challenge. So four drinks, nice. I, two so, single malts. Yeah. And there you go. The win, which is amazing. <laughs> it's um, what was incredible about the setup um, was that, like you say, you've got 50 odd bartenders all scheduled to live stream uh, into a studio in London on time and you, this requires all this sort of technical stuff to work across all these 50 different locations and of course locally you, and then you've got avatar bartenders who are there 
yeah like building all the recipes yeah so yeah simultaneous to that every bartender is assigned a bartender locally who has been who's received ingredients assuming things have gone as they should have done and i know there were some ingredients that didn't turn up or got held up in customs or whatever um and they they are then making the cocktails that you you'll have you'll have already had a sort of briefing period with them right to you know to go over exactly what it's supposed to look like and taste like and everything well no not really like we had submitted <laughs> we had submitted instructions we'd submitted photos um yeah and if they had any questions they would go through the okay. logistical team and the logistical team would relay those questions to us and then we would send back the answers but I never got to interact with any of the Avatar bartenders while I was actually competing. I've since uh, been able to meet some of them when I was in London. I, I made a point of seeking some of them out at their bars and thanking them profusely because. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank God they obviously they made, made these tasty drinks, drinks right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. It must be but strange, was, like, I, sort of handing over responsibility like that. I mean, not that you had a choice, of course. But it's sort of oh, like, for sure. it's just kind of like hoping that the brief was good. The brief you gave was good enough for this drink to be executed in exactly the way that you would make it if you were there. Oh, absolutely. Like that was to, to sort of put my entire fate in the hands of these bartenders who I knew would be excellent bartenders. I, like I knew that they were going to be vetted and, and great at their jobs, but you're still handing over like all of the work you've done and all of the stress you've got to this person and hoping that you've written the instructions out properly, your ingredients have made it there in one piece. You haven't, you know, missed a step. So beforehand I was sending my instructions and my ingredients to like bartenders in other cities in Canada and, you know, going to other bars and being like, make this, tell me if it makes sense and making sure that it tasted right. And then actually, for some of the ingredients or for some of the challenges that required bespoke ingredients, like the Don Julio challenge, mm. putting those ingredients in a box and couriering them to London yeah. was hugely stressful, especially, you know, a weekend when they hadn't arrived and I was talking to couriers and they're like, we don't, what package? We don't know what you're talking about, where this is. Oh, and like, so, so many kind of sleepless nights trying to trying to figure out how you know if these ingredients don't arrive how can we make them for ingredients in from ingredients in the in the pantry because you know i had been working with a, a chef here that i i collaborate with a lot and some of those ingredients had gone through you know a rotary evaporator or a centrifuge or you know a paco jet and a vac sealer and it's just like those don't exist in the prep room on site so yeah and I mean, like, even if you, um, even if you could sort of instruct them to remake it with, you know, more standard equipment, um, yeah, you know, you can never trust that you're going to get the same level of intensity of whatever you're infusing or, or you're reducing down. I mean, sh you know, sugar and salt and things like that, that, sh that shouldn't be a problem, but it's like, you know, let's say you're like, I don't know, putting lavender in a sous vide. Like they can do that, but yeah. what are the condition of the lavender flowers like locally? You know, are they super intense or are they super subtle? And obviously that is going to skew your final cocktail. Well, that's exactly the thing. Like even if they had all the equipment and all the ingredients, like do are the ingredients in season in the same way? Are they as flavorful yeah. or are they the exact same varietal? So thankfully I got a call like the very last day any of those ingredients could arrive. 
And I had sent multiple oh. boxes kind of as backups. And I got a call and they're like, just so yeah. you know, all three of these boxes arrived within like 20 minutes of each other. So I can <laughs> finally rest easy. Well, I mean, at that time, um, sort of mid-2021, 20, like shipping things internationally was a blooming nightmare anyway. Like because oh, of, of yeah. COVID and everything, it was so difficult to get things pushed through customs and all the couriers were like operating sort of two, three times longer than usual. So God, it must have been so stressful for you. Well, and I'm sure just some of these like customs agents are looking at this box and they're, you know, everything's labeled and, and detailed inside, but it's like, what is clarified brown butter, sunchoke water? And why is it just a bag of like black liquid? Like, you know, like I'm sure that they had no idea what any of this was. But yeah. Made and it. I mean, there might be other boxes with more kind of um, suspicious looking stuff in there. I mean, bartenders sure. are you know commonly traveling around with different powders and all that sort of stuff and you know just because it says citric acid on it <laughs> just because it says citric oh, acid dear. yeah what um so did, did what did go did anything go wrong like what were the kind of parts of the competition you're like ah damn i've messed that up um I, was, I would imagine that pretty much every winner has something that they weren't quite happy with yes i would say um so the first was, was, were those packages going missing? That was a big part of it. Um, the second was finally when I made it through to the top 10 and, uh, myself and my bar back, uh, who's an enormous help. He was, uh, my predecessor is the Canadian national winner, Jeff Savage, who's, you know, one of the most incredible bartenders in the country. Um, and just a dear friend. He was kind of there with me every step of the way we were working on, uh, my drinks and we kind of nailed down the you know, the final specs for the, the speed round cocktails. We submitted them. And one of the drinks that we were really, really proud of was this nitro infused singleton cocktail uh, that was strawberry, thyme, dry vermouth, water, citric acid, simple syrup, singleton whiskey, and then, yeah, thyme and, and strawberry all in a, like an ISI whipper, basically, uh, nitro infused. Mm. We tasted it. We're like, this is it. This is this is going to be like the showstopper. Uh, no one else is going to do like a pressure infused cocktail a la minute. Uh, so we submit it, and uh, kind of the the main person on the ground gets back to me uh, a couple hours later. I sit up in bed because my phone's uh, buzzing at me, and they're like, "Yeah, this looks great. Just so you know, we don't have time in the pantry." Oh really? And. We were just like, what? Like, how How can you not? Because we were, like, so sure. It's like, oh, they have rosemary, they have basil, they have this and that, and, like, it should be fine. And so we're scrambling. They're like, you have basically an hour to tell us what you're going to replace it with. Um, so we rush over to the prep room and figure it out. And we ended up going with basil, and it worked. It was delicious. It was fine. But that was a moment where, you know, I was – probably at my most stressed getting ready for that the speed round the tale of two malts challenge was i don't think i've ever done anything more stressful in my life oh wow so how did it i didn't didn't see that challenge how did it work did you you did the speed round like locally where you were and then the cocktails you managed to actually make were then produced for the judges to taste is that how it went correct so um the top 10 was announced on, I don't remember what day of the week it was, but let's say uh, it was a Tuesday, uh, sort of mid-afternoon my time. Uh, we were told we made it through to the top 10. We had to have our 
um, drink recipes submitted to the team in London by midday the next day. Uh, and mm -hmm. then the next morning after that, we had to present live on camera. So we finally got our drinks figured out. Uh, we had to do four scotch cocktails, one stirred, one shaken, one built, and one bartender's choice. Uh, two had to be made with Singleton. Uh, two had to be made with Talisker. And otherwise, you know, we had to ha submit a menu with names and sort of we had to tell a story with our round. It was based around yeah. both speed and storytelling. And so we took probably until about four in the morning that first night to get all the drinks fully dialed in. I had, I'd shown up with rough ideas and my bar back, Jeff, was sort of like, no, none of these are where they need to be. Uh, we need to do some work. And he's like, you know, basically you just start refining them and we'll start scoring them and yeah. we'll keep track of what all the recipes are. But, you know, you have, you have a lot of hard work to do. So we did it and finally uh, got them all, submitted the recipes, submitted the menu, and then was the hard work of figuring out, can we make these in five minutes? Because, yeah. you know, the, the Avatar bartenders are going to put these drinks up as you finish them. So you need to be able to actually execute them and get them done. And we did not really take the easy way out on any of them. Uh, the four drinks we ended up doing were kind of a, a Collins style cocktail, sort of what it was, was a riff on a Mammy Taylor. So that was our shaken cocktail. Uh, it was uh, like ancho chili liqueur, uh, maple syrup, lemon juice, ginger ale, and singleton of Dufton. A little bit of Angostura bitters. Uh, our stirred cocktail was a Bobby Burns variation. So it was Talisker, pineapple Ciroc, uh, sherry, a little bit of simple syrup, and garnished with a spray of uh, coconut Ciroc, so kind of kind of tropical and nice. smoky. Uh, our built cocktail was a hot cocktail, so it was uh, fresh, hot, steeped black tea, triple sec, uh, maple syrup, talisker, and creme de cacao, topped with a freshly whipped uh sherry cream that we floated on nice. top and then our uh bartender not to be confused with cream sherry exactly yeah no uh <laughs> heavy whipping cream and sherry and uh simple syrup shaken to order uh like i said did not take the easy way out and then the last was that nitro infused cocktail so yeah uh singleton whiskey dry vermouth simple syrup water citric acid and then basil and uh, fresh strawberries, nitro infused, uh, and strained into a glass. So it was pretty difficult. The first time we did a rough run through, uh, I was told, you know, just make the cocktails, put them up, see how fast you can do it. We had to do this round in, we had to do the round in five minutes. And the first time we ran through it, it was nine and a half minutes. So too long. And we just kind of took a step back and we're like, is there any way that we can actually do this? And we just ran through it over and over for probably 18 hours. And the first time that I actually got it down to five minutes was 
when I did it live on camera. Oh, because <laughs> it's like something out of a uh, out of a movie. It's like you had the was... kind of um, the montage <laughs> of all the practice and everything with the kind of like hype music, like, dun, 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 like Rocky music, exactly. and then. You know, you keep failing, keep failing. And then at the final moment where it all counts, you manage to get it under five minutes. That's it. It's just like adrenaline hits. And like, and I'd yeah. also never done it up till that point, actually speaking. So it wasn't until I was actually on wow. camera that I was telling this story to the judges. And I think, you know, really my body just went on autopilot, made the drinks. Mm. And I just started. I think speaking can help. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just started. Yeah. Like I think if, you, if you're good words. at it. Yeah. If you're good at speaking, it can really help, I think, because it almost command you're always commanding yourself what to do next or what you should be doing. Um, exactly. I think sometimes actually like not speaking out loud means you kind of get inside your own head a bit too much and that's when you can stumble. But, you know, if, if you're not so good at speaking, then I guess maybe it's not because that becomes one of the kind of nerve wracking parts of, of the presentation. Yeah, it's, I mean, in my case, I think it certainly helped. I think um, I'm, I enjoy the actual kind of like, presentational aspect of, of bartending competitions uh so being on that stage i think is is enjoyable but oof, i don't really remember doing <laughs> around like i have the only memory i have is is kind of the video that i have uh on social media now uh which even still is a little too stressful to watch i i can't watch it <laughs> I enjoy the presentation side of it more than making the drinks. If I, if I could get away with it, I would just have an avatar bartender make the drink for me and say, well, look, it's my recipe. You don't need to see me do it. And then I'd just kind well, of I mean, that's, chat. That's kind of what we do behind the bar anyways, right? We provide an experience. We show guests a good time. Ultimately, like I always yeah. tell people, like making cocktails is maybe one of the least difficult or important parts of my job. It's mainly how I make a guest, you know, feel welcome and looked after. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So where, where are you working? Tell us about where you work. So I work in a bar right now called Little Hong Kong. It's uh, a little back room. You know, we call it a speakeasy, but it's just kind of like a little private back room uh, added onto a larger restaurant called Baijiu, which is uh, kind of a, a casual Chinese restaurant slash cocktail bar. Uh, and my room, uh, 16 seats, it's just me and I run it menu free. So guests come in, hmm. uh, I welcome them, kind of give them the same little, you know, welcome uh, chat, kind of explain, you know, there's no menu, but that, that means, you know, the goal is to get you exactly what you want. So, you know, if there's classic cocktails you like, we can start there. Or you can just give me some flavors and some spirits and we'll figure it out together. And yeah, it's just my effort to sort of provide a very bespoke experience to each guest. I, that's cool. I love that that whole idea of tailoring it um, to the guests and not. It's like the sort of total opposite of a tasting menu in a way, where it's like this is the rigid structure of drinks that you're going to have this evening. Um, it's yeah, much I've, more I've, open. I've but, had but some I, guests. Well, I was going to say it's 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 the opposite of a tasting menu, but it, it's similar, I guess, sort of in expression of hospitality to uh, is the term uh, omakase, the the style of sushi preparation where the the chef kind of presents something specifically to each guest. Right. Yeah. I don't know if that's the term or not, but yeah, that, that I, I, I don't know what you're talking I'm, about. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's how certain guests have like, when I explain to them, they're sort of like, Oh, it's like this. And I, that's very complimentary. So I say, yes, exactly. Mm. As I remember, um, I remember Brian Silver, um, 
were a great bartender um when he used to be at rules um which uh, you ever been to rules in london in covent garden or maiden lane i haven't no it's no so it's the oldest restaurant in london um and it's not that old weirdly you'd think oldest restaurant in london what is that like four or five hundred years old and it's like 140 years old or something 130 years old i mean it's old okay but um yeah it you know it kind of reminds us that restaurants are still a relatively new thing. Anyway, they it, it's super fancy. It's been in like I think it's been in a couple of James Bond movies and um, various other films where they want to go to somewhere sort of quintessentially upper class London kind of thing. Anyway, right. there was a there's a bar upstairs there with beautiful bar upstairs, <clears throat> um, which I would advise anyone to go to if they're if they're visiting London. Anyone who who's into drinks and lives in London has probably already been there. Um, and Brian Silver used to be the, the bar manager there and he would do exactly that. You'd walk in and it was, I think, I don't know. It'd be interesting to see how your style differs to his, but what he, it was almost like a sort of education on flavor and cocktails where he was demonstrating how things mix and you were getting to taste the sort of fruits of that. So it wasn't so much as like, um, you know, what's your mood like what do you want to taste it was but it would sort of flow with the conversation you'd be like oh i like the taste of that and he'd go well if you like that you'll probably like this and actually i should put you yeah. through a drink together with that and that kind of thing and it's just a wonderful personal experience um that you know is very memorable because i here i am recounting it years later i mean i think i'm a very strong proponent of i mean that sounds wonderful and it sounds very much like exactly the kind of experience that you know I think can come out of that style of service. And it's when I'm training young bartenders, one of the things I always tell them is, you know, people won't always remember what you made them, but they will always remember how you made them feel. Um, mm. And, you know, oftentimes like, I don't even necessarily remember what I made for a guest for their first round. You know, they might at the end of the night say like, can you make me the second drink that you made me tonight? And I'm just like, no, probably not. But if you tell me what you asked for, <laughs> I can probably make you something kind of close to it. Um, it's the, the room that I run is, uh, I wish it could be a bit more of kind of a, uh, let's call it like an elegant education in flavor. Um, but oftentimes, you know, when there's 16, 18 people in the room and it's just me and they're all ordering kind of bespoke dealer's choice cocktails, the room gets a little wild, which is nice in certain ways. Like, you know, everyone starts, everyone's kind of packed in there and they're, they're getting to know one another and everyone's making friends it's it's kind of the best of what a bar room can be is that you know that kind of third space um but yeah convivial because yeah. it's a small number of people i guess everyone gets talking to each other right exactly and everyone kind of wants to know because everyone's got a different drink in front of them everyone wants to know like oh like what did you get and you know mm. now that you know before the times of of covid people would be like tasting one another's drinks and they'd be like oh i want what yeah. you know they had or um, can you make me something more like that? It's just, yeah, it's a very fun room to be in. Do so. Do you have to challenge yourself to not st- to not kind of gravitate towards certain formulas, or do you have the opposite question? Really, do you have certain favorites that you will just deploy? You know, when when uh, someone you know someone asks for a sort of a style of drink that's commonly asked for, kind of thing. Well, that's the trick of running a bar with no menu, right? Is that, you know, as I think, I think a lot of like seasoned bartenders know, and I, I'll tell this to guests when they ask, but 
there really are only like, you know, nine or 10 cocktails, really. Mm. Um, everything else is just a variation. Like a martini and a Manhattan are basically the same thing. It's just a matter of, you know, what kind of mood you're in and what ingredients you want to combine. But, uh, you know, for what I call sort of like in like starter cocktails for people, if they've just sat down and, you know, they're not necessarily sure what they want to drink or they are, you know, they order a classic, obviously that's what I'll make. But I do get a lot of people that come in who are interested because they've maybe heard that, you know, I work there uh, or a friend is bringing them in who's more interested in cocktails than they are. Uh, for people that maybe don't have a lot of experience with cocktails, that's when, you know, I'll start kind of asking, you know, like, do you prefer something uh, more on the citrusy side, more on the kind of, you know, spirit forward side? Do you want something mm. uh, tart or sweet? And, you know, you ask kind of the basic questions that we always ask. Um, but there are definitely drinks that I gravitate towards uh, as starter cocktails. So I think something like a white lady is such a like beautiful mm. classic cocktail that is very difficult for, I think, anyone to get mad at, whether you're a seasoned drinker or uh, an absolute novice at cocktails. It's just like, it's light, it's clean, it's citrusy, it's bright. Um, by the same token, like I think uh, something like a Bobby Burns uh, for a lot of drinkers who prefer, you know, their kind of old-fashioned Manhattan style, um, I'll often start them with a Bobby Burns because it gives me the opportunity of saying, like, I know you like stirred-down cocktails, but... You know, do you like smoky flavors? Do you like kind of richer, more fruity flavors? And that'll kind of dictate what whiskey I use for it. And then, you know, you have your whole range of uh, kind of builds, whether it's, you know, a last word spec, which is pretty versatile, or um, I think the Bobby Burns spec is actually very, very versatile of using, you know, a spirit, a lengthener, mm -hmm. and a, a small amount of a modifier. So I, I go to a lot of those kind of, I guess, like improved classic builds like yeah. rather than making yeah. a sour all the time i might make you know a daisy variation rather than making you know a manhattan or a martini variation i'll do like a bobby burns rip it must be a great way of coming up with new recipes and sort of testing stuff out because you you're effectively getting getting guests to sort of pay for your experiments like you know if you if you think right they want a long cocktail but they also like dark spirits cool you know, I'll do a sort of Rob Roy formula, but I'll lengthen it out with, you know, soda and maybe an, an additional liqueur or I'll, um, you know, mix it with apple juice or, or something that's seasonal or whatever. And because you've done it, done this kind of thing thousands and thousands of times, and like you say, you know, the principles, the sort of first principles behind all of this, the kind of basic cocktail families and, you know, well, that spirit goes without liqueur, but that doesn't work you get a sense before you've even done it of what it's going to be taste like and, and probably very rarely surprised about the taste. So it must be so yeah, good I mean, to be able to sort of have people kind of paying for this development process of drinks. Yeah. And I, I, I try to never think of it. Like, obviously, you know, there are, there are times where like, I guess might come in and they're like, Oh, are you working on anything specifically right now? And, you know, oftentimes the answer is yes. You know, if I'm doing, a consulting gig or something like that, I, I might have a couple cocktails that I feel are in a pretty good position and are, you know, ready for public consumption, I suppose. Um, and it's really nice to have, you know, guests who are, are willing to, you know, try things like that. You know, I, I recently had one that 
it was a, a cocktail that I wasn't sure how it would necessarily land, but it was uh, kind of in between like a white lady and a penicillin, but it was a vodka based cocktail. Um, so like <laughs> some vodka, turmeric, honey, uh, triple sec, ginger, chai, lemon. Um, and it was a cocktail I'd been working on for, for another menu. And uh, I thought it was quite good, but I wasn't sure how, you know, guests would react to having this like very kind of, kind of full flavored um, vodka cocktail that normally would be, yeah. you know, made with a whiskey when you kind of looked at it on paper and, you know, it landed really well. Like guests were really happy with it. At one point I was like half of the, half of the bar is drinking this cocktail. So I think we can probably go ahead and call this one finished. Um, so it is <laughs> nice, but I do try to, I'll never take like a really wild swing on a on a guest's order because i think you know they're 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 kind of paying a premium for my services i don't want to risk it with a cocktail that i'm not 100 percent sure of so you know as much as i've done yeah. this a thousand times i'm still strawing each drink and still making sure it tastes good and like you say like i don't get a lot of surprises but it definitely happens like you know i'd say at least once once a week or so you know i try to make something and i'm like this needs to be adjusted or outright. I'm like, this is not going to work. And we just have to start from scratch. So happens to the best of us. Does everyone drink cocktails? Is it, is it nope. pretty much hundred percent cocktails? No, uh, no, not at Everything. all. Um, especially when I do private parties in there, oftentimes, you know, I'll have a, a private booking of say 16 people. Uh, and the people that made the booking might be, you know, interested in cocktails or they might've, you know, they just want a private room or they've heard, uh, you know, good things about, you know, my work in there, but other members of the party maybe have never had cocktails or they're not interested in that. And so, you know, I'm always happy mm -hmm. to grab them, you know, wine or beer from the main room or, you know, try to ease them into cocktails or even do something non-alcoholic for them. Uh, but yeah, ultimately, like, even when someone comes in, they're like, I just want a highball. Uh, it's funny because it'll be like other members of their party will sort of you know, say like, oh, you can't ask him for just like a vodka soda. Like you got to ask for something better. I always have to say, you know, I'm happy to make you literally whatever you want to drink. My job is to make the drinks and host you. It's not to judge what you order and it's not to drink them myself. So yeah, whatever you want, we'll make it. What's um, Edmonton like as a sort of food and drink city? Is it a big thing there or are you sort of a relatively, you know, unique entity within that town? No, I mean, I'm, I'm really not. Uh, Edmonton is, so within Canada, it's a relatively small market. So a small market within what is globally a small market. Uh, we're about a million people, but geographically, we're also quite isolated. Uh, we're quite far, quite far north. Uh, and historically, uh, we've kind of always been off of, you know, bands, tour routes or, uh, big gallery shows typically wouldn't wouldn't come through. They would go go south to to another uh, large city nearby. And so our food and drink and music and arts communities have always been very independent and always had to kind of DIY everything. Like there is this very very kind of fierce pride in in how creative and and well developed uh, all of these communities were uh, in Edmonton. And so like. The, the food and drink community uh, really took to that attitude uh, when when cocktails uh, first started kicking off. At this point, probably about 10 years ago, um, there were a couple of 
just incredible uh, cocktail bars that opened uh, that, you know, developed a really uh, tightly knit community of bartenders that, uh, you know, have now spread across Canada. Like being here in Vancouver right now, you know, there are Edmonton expats running hmm. bar programs all over the city. Uh, my predecessor, uh, as the Canadian winner, Jeff Savage, who I mentioned earlier, uh, he helped open one of the first cocktail bars in Edmonton. And I was first, the first cocktail bar I was hired at in Edmonton, I was hired to replace him when he moved down to another city to open a bar there. So right. like the city punches pretty high above its, its weight class in terms of being a very small market, but putting out some of, I think the most talented, uh, chefs and bartenders in the country. Nice. Which, I mean, I've, I've never really been to Canada. I've, I've sort of crossed the border briefly once or twice, Niagara Falls and that sort of stuff. But, um, so I don't know the market at all, but you know, where, where would you say, um, perhaps outside of Edmonton, um, it's sort of really happening at the moment. Is Vancouver the kind of top city for cocktail bars and restaurants, outside, you know, or, or, or somewhere else? I mean, Toronto and Vancouver are always going to be the two big centers of, of food and drink mm. in, in Canada. They're just the two largest cities. They have kind of the most uh, opportunity to open different concepts just because you have the population that can kind of support uh, whatever you look at opening, right? Like a bar like, to use an example, Moria Margo in New York, really cool concept, like only stirred cocktails, no juices, no syrups, just, you know, stirred down ingredients. Really cool, but it's also in a city of like, what, 8 million people can easily support yeah. such a niche concept. That couldn't necessarily succeed in a city of 1 million people like Edmonton. But you can open weirder concepts in places like Vancouver, Toronto, even Montreal. Uh, although Montreal yeah. being you know, such a, such a French city, uh, really has always marched to the beat of its own drum, uh, both in terms of, uh, food and drink, but in almost every other capacity, uh, uh, in Canada. And mm. there's a couple of smaller outliers. Halifax is this, this tiny little, uh, university city out in the Maritimes, uh, really far out in Atlantic Canada, uh, but puts out some of the best bartenders and like some of the most amazing restaurants, uh, going right now and they just they're they're similar to to edmonton in the sense that just like really small community but very passionate very driven uh and very very talented nice definitely overdue a trip proper trip it takes ages yeah, to get around there right i mean like a, a flight across canada is like eight hours or something crazy isn't it six hours maybe yep yep oh. i mean for me to fly from edmonton to toronto to compete uh is four and a half hours. Wow. Yeah. And that's like, to me, I consider that a pretty short flight. <laughs> yeah. You can get outside of Europe in pretty much every direction from where I'm from in, in four and a half hours. <laughs> oh, I, when I lived in London, it was so, it was such a luxury to me that I could like get on a plane and be, you know, in Spain in like an hour. Like that's so, yeah. that's so wild to me. What a treat. Yeah, we totally take that for granted here. Like, it's it's not something that we actually action um, enough. The fact that you can be in Italy or Spain or, you know, the Netherlands in an hour or two. 
and um, in a completely different culture, you know, well, not completely different, but pretty, pretty damn different. I always thought it was so funny when I would talk to like my flatmates living in London or when I was living in Scotland for school that people would, you know, they would be like, oh, that's like two hours away. That's like, that's a whole day. <laughs> that's a whole day of your time. And I was like, that's be there by like 10 in the morning. That's amazing. <laughs> so you were in London for a bit, were you? I was. I started bartending in London. Okay. Colin, give us a little bit of uh, your backstory then. Um, maybe to start from the start. How did you get into hospitality in the first place? So uh, I was living in London in 2013. Uh, I had just moved out of Canada. I really needed uh, a change of scenery, a change of place. And at the time I was working in public relations. So I was doing like communications work and stuff like that. And I landed in London. I probably sent out a hundred resumes uh, for for PR and communications jobs. And I didn't get a single call back. And eventually I figured I just needed to pay my rent. So I went on Google and I searched for bartender resume and I found a fake bartending resume and made up a bunch of bars back in Edmonton because I figured, well, they're never going to call no. international to check a reference and it's fine. I know how to pull a pint. I knew I couldn't fake making cocktails, but I knew I could pull a pint. So uh, I sent out this fake resume uh and within like a day i had 30 callbacks and uh within a week i had a, a job lock, locked down uh at a bar in hampstead uh camden town brewery which was an independent brewery in in london was uh getting ready to reopen kind of their flagship pub in hampstead so i was oh, on the, the team for the the horseshoe yeah yeah so yeah i was involved in the, the horseshoe a few horseshoe. times yeah and yeah. it's like, yeah, that's where I started. Um, and just like fell in love with, with, uh, with serving people. That's so funny. You know, that bar, you're the only bartender I've ever spoken to that, that knows that spot. Yeah. I used to live in Highgate, which is pretty close to Hampstead. So we go, we come to the horseshoe occasionally. I definitely had Sunday lunch there a few times. It's a good pub. Yeah. It was, it was just like, it was such a, you know what, for a first bartending job, it was, I couldn't have asked for more. You know, I had, uh, managers there that that were so wonderful and so good and, and like patient and even though like i was lying through my teeth about any sort of experience i was just very happy to be looking after people and and making sure that mm. you know everyone was getting their drinks and uh you know it was obviously london's very expensive to live in uh i ran out of money i was uh i was walking like to and from work every day and i was living in bounds green like so far up in north london i was walking like you know, hour and a half, two hours each way. Uh, I just couldn't afford like an oyster car, yeah. but, um, you know, I still loved it and eventually ran out of money, moved back to Canada and, uh, then felt comfortable enough to take a job as a bar back at a, at a cocktail bar and actually start learning how to mix drinks. Hmm. Didn't use the fake Edmonton venues on the CV at that point, presumably. <laughs> no, no, I, I had to come clean. Uh, the the person I was seeing at the time, their best friend uh, knew the, the manager, the bar manager at uh, kind of the premier cocktail bar at the time in, in the city. And uh, I had an interview and I was like, I'm going to be honest with you. I have bartended a little. I'm interested in cocktails and I'm willing to learn, but I don't know anything. So, mm. and did they took you, a chance um, on me? So that was good. It was lucky for the rest of the rest of the world and Edmonton specifically. 
Um, so did, did the cocktail thing, did that happen while you were in London? Did you visit cocktail? I don't, don't suppose you had enough money to visit many cocktail bars if you're having to walk to work. No, I didn't. I mean, I, uh, I went to a couple, but you know, cocktails were one of those things that, you know, I'd seen the culture around it and I'd been to certain bars and like, I knew certain drinks that I liked. So I, like a friend before I'd moved away had been a big fan of like a Sazerac. And so he'd make Sazeracs for me. And I was like, oh, this cocktail is mm. really cool. Or I really liked, uh, you know, I'd go to bars and I'd order a Negroni and I really enjoyed that. But even when I was living in London, I remember being at a, a like a big party at uh, like our flat warming that my, my flatmates and I put on. Uh, there was a guy there making Negronis and I had to keep going up to him and being like, I like this drink so much. Can you make me another one? Like, cause it was so wild to me that like, I couldn't remember what went in it. And so um, I reckon there's I so many them, people but... who've had, had that experience with Negronis, like the first time they try it. Cause it's a bit of a Marmite drink, isn't it? I think so. Totally. Some people really like Campari and some people don't. Um, but for those that do, um, when they're first exposed to it, they're like, Oh my God. Like, <laughs> what is this drink it's really how do you tasty. make it it's so uh, must be yeah. so complicated <laughs> yeah exactly yeah um but um and that well it's become like a sort of poster child of of craft cocktails now hasn't it really it's uh it, it's so wild to me now that like you know at least back home people order negronis like so casually like it is such a common drink whereas like 10 years ago you know that was like some that was some deep craft cocktail knowledge yeah 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 i mean it was a sort of signifier of your appreciation of cocktails it was almost like a kind of yeah social move you know it's like yeah i'll have a negroni or, or it's like kind of knowing the wine vintage that you want you know it's like it, mm-hmm. it sort of demonstrates that you you're in the in crowd and you know what's going on um but i guess that's how it it spread you know it goes back to the whole thing of like you know we can overcome taste aversions if we believe enough that we should be eating or drinking something and i, I suspect well, that it, must have happened in negroni for, for a lot of people um it's like well i, I think just it also shows drink how much kind of uh, how much opportunity we have as bartenders to kind of shape the the growing palette of our community. Um, mm. You know, I think one of the most interesting things is going to different cities and sort of recognizing what uh, call drinks are on different menus. Like yeah. when I go to London, uh, two drinks that I always see on menus that I never see in Canada are uh, obviously a, a bramble and a, cornstar martini <laughs> and you don't really see those in in north america but you see you see like last words everywhere or you see you know naked and famous everywhere um yeah, you don't see many of them over here really no right and it's uh i i think it's really funny when you can sort of identify drinks and trace them back to uh specific bartenders or specific bars in a community like there's two drinks that i feel like every Edmonton bartender at one point knew and a lot of regulars knew because they had been on an early menu at the first cocktail bar in Edmonton. And those two drinks were uh, a Lafroig project and a last mechanical art, which are both pretty obscure modern classics. Like they're known. Um, but I think one is from uh, here in new Orleans and one is from, 
bourbon and branch in San Francisco. They're both kind of early 2000 cocktails. Um, like if you're not familiar with them, like a Laphroaig project is kind of a very weird last word using both chartreuse's maraschino, lemon juice, Laphroaig quarter cask and peach bitters. It doesn't make any sense on paper, but it's delicious. Uh, doesn't sound like Alaska I've Canada. never had one. It doesn't. It, it sounds uh, pretty intense. <laughs> it's quite word, intense. With, with you, thrown in. But it's like it's it's this drink that so many people order because you know mm. bartenders got really excited about it. They started like making them for their friends or ordering them when they went to other bars, putting them on their kind of like feature list, and now you know so many guests will order it and have no idea that it's not you know a cocktail that is well known outside you can find of our city. anywhere else really yeah, yeah that's cool I, isn't I, it yeah i think it's it's just so interesting because you know you had these this one bar has kind of shaped the taste of of the whole community generations back mm. yeah that's really fascinating i wonder what other examples there i mean yeah i wonder what other examples there are of cities where there's a sort of cocktail that doesn't really cross the border of the like like county lines you know um it's just contained i mean there's and the people drinking it are sort of blissfully ignorant to the fact that no one else in the world's really drinking this cocktail i mean there's certain drinks like i can kind of like one of the the examples that like really springs to mind is kind of like that is it the the mill the midwest old-fashioned uh i don't know it's kind i don't of know like, that so I think it's it's either a Midwest old fashioned or a Milwaukee old fashioned, but it's in a very specific area of the United States. And so if I get this wrong, please forgive me, like American bartenders. But it's uh, American brandy as a base, uh, muddled cherry, uh, muddled orange slice, and like a splash of Sprite as a sweetener, and then like stirred okay. down over ice. And it's like when you're in this area, like that's an old fashioned. Like if you order an old fashioned, so that's like, what you get. Uh... It's like halfway between brandy and lemonade, which is what some of my friends used to drink in nightclubs and an old fashioned. Yeah. 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 And it's funny. I know that Jim Meehan did like a kind of elevated version of it for one of his, uh, one of his bars, uh, Prairie school when he opened that, um, a few years ago, but, uh, yeah, that's kind of a funny little regional version of a drink. I think um, there's obviously drinks that certain bars become famous for. You know, you're like, right, you've, you know, you've got to drink the sidecar at Harry's and all this sort of thing. And, um, you know, we, most classic cocktails can be kind of attributed to a bar. But what you're talking about there that's unusual is when it goes beyond just one bar and becomes, like you say, amongst all the bars in the community. So it sort of becomes shared rather than belonging to that one yeah. venue. Yeah, and that's cool. Well, that's that's the... that's kind of similar to like I think what happens with a lot of Dick Bradsell's cocktails. You know, those are yeah. those are London cocktails now. That's true, but yeah, the the yeah, it's certainly all over the UK. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's sort of what does it take for the drink to become big enough to go from to sort of leapfrog from one bar to let's say a dozen bars, but not so big that it goes to all the bars in the country or all over the world, you know, there's obviously, it needs to there's, stay a, there's right an escape a... velocity there that doesn't quite meet, you know, and uh, that's, it's, it's, but it's fun. It's cute, right? That this sort of like becomes that drink of that region or city or whatever. Yeah. Which I think is like, I think there's something so charming about that. Like, I, I also yeah. think like, it's really cute when like a country as a whole adopts a cocktail, like Australia with the espresso martini. Hmm. 
where it's just like that drink yeah. is everywhere. I, I think yeah. that's like so wild to have transplanted a drink like that, like all the way around the world and just like explode. Yeah. Yeah, it's cool. I like, yeah, when I when I drink, when I country, we we had it with. Um, I don't know what was it like in Canada it, with the mojito. I remember when I first started bartending, was just <laughs> every other order was a mojito, um, and the UK certainly at the time. And I don't reckon it was going on in the rest of Europe, or at least not most of the rest. Um, was just obsessed with this cocktail, and it, to be a bartender in like two thousand and one. 2002 was to basically be a mojito factory worker that was it you'd just stand we there never and build had these things i never went through a period where i where i went to work in the mojito mines but uh <laughs> like there's definitely uh, there were, i'm trying to think what would have been like the big drink when i first started i mean when i was coming up my community was really in the thrall of like brown bitter and stirred it was a lot of like yeah. boulevardiers negronis manhattans those styles of drinks um also weirdly we made a lot of sherry cobblers now that i think of it mm. Mm. we had one we had one yeah. kind of like bar manager that was like a really strong proponent of sherry right as that was starting to like i mean now sherry is everywhere in cocktail bars um but he was sort of the first proponent of them in, in our city. And he's like, we're going to put cherry cobblers on the menu. People will love them. And much like a hundred years ago, yes, people still love cherry cobblers. Um, but like being in a high volume bar and having to make, you know, 20 cherry cobblers with nothing more than a Lewis bag and, you know, <laughs> some cold draft yeah. ice is nothing really slows down your, your production like that. I think um, uh, guests, consumers will always be drawn to drinks that are quite labor intensive because it gives yes, them a sense I've that they're that really too. getting something for their money, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 The success of the Ramos um, would speak to that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's that's the perfect example. So, um, what is going on next? You've uh, you're gonna do you're gonna embark upon a, a world tour or something of that ilk to kind of uh, showcase your art and um, inspire the next world class bartender of the year. What's what's happening? I think that's I think that's the plan. So uh, we just finished up the the first stage of the Canadian national finals here. Uh, we just did our Eastern and Western regional semifinals. So we have our national top 10. Uh, and in about a month, we will do our national finals in Montreal. And we'll have our Canadian winner. Canada is usually one of the first countries to get ours out of the way. Uh, and then at the end of May, uh, I am kind of on the road, sort of April. It looks like I might be heading on the road as well. I just got some some travel requests come across my desk. Um, but yeah, starting to go out and judge other national finals. Um, they're not all guaranteed yet, but it's looking like some spots in the UK, some spots kind of in the Mediterranean. Uh, but you know, hopefully I can visit as many, uh, competing countries as possible. I haven't seen as much of the world as I would like, uh, certainly not as much of the cocktail world kind of beyond central Europe and North America. So 
yeah, my goal over the next year is to sort of see as many bartenders as I can. And, and yeah, just, I don't know. To me, it's as, Milk it's it. as exciting. Yeah. It's just so exciting to be able to go out and like absorb all of the like inspiration from these bartenders. Like they're all so excited to be, you know, in an industry that's coming back to life and, and being able to showcase their yeah. creativity and their passion. Like, I can't wait to see that. That, that sounds like such a, that, what a prize. Mm. And then professionally beyond that, um, you know, where do you see things going over the next two years, five years, 10 years with myself what do you be when you're older? <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh, I'll be happy if I'm yeah, still yourself, bartending. Yeah. Um, it's funny, like, you know, from here, you know, what everyone keeps telling me is they're like, what are you going to do? You can do anything. And I guess that's true. But um, what I really love doing is bartending. So, you know, mm -hmm. if I have the opportunity to uh, do that in a space, um, you know, whether or not it'll be Edmonton, I don't know. Uh, you know, I have a lot of close friends here in Vancouver. I have a lot of close friends in Toronto. Uh, I'm about to be able to travel. Uh, to destinations around the world. And who knows, one of those might, you know, really connect with me. Um, yeah. For this year, I'm kind of going to enjoy the ride. But I don't really see myself moving out from behind the bar in any significant way. Uh, in the next couple of years, it took me uh, 30 years to find the career that I really love. And I kind of want to do it as long as I can and help foster the next generation of bartenders and, and continue to serve guests. So yeah, whether it's I end up owning a bar or just working as a, a kind of bar lead somewhere, I think I'm just very, very grateful to be able to, uh, you know, look after people doing something that I love, which sounds like a pretty trite answer, but it's kind of the only one that I've got. So, you know, I'm sure that I'll be able to travel and I'm sure I'll be able to continue to be involved in the world class program and do some consulting and, you know, do all the things that are, are really fun extras in our in our careers, but really I'm just excited to, to be able to finally, after two years, go back to bartending. I think we'll end it on that note. Brilliant. That's all for this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. Do remember to subscribe to the podcast through your preferred podcast platform. And remember to check out our Diageo Bar Academy Bar Chat Shorts episodes. It's a great tool for exploring our ever-increasing library of content and if you haven't already make sure you become a diageo bar academy member head over to diageobaracademy.com see you next time